Good morning. Today we'll be reading from the book of Acts um, in chapter 2. If you picked up a Bible in the foyer, it's found on page 884. So that's Acts chapter 2 and we're reading verses 42 to 47. It'll also be on the screen behind me. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone (coughs) was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Good morning, my name's Ross, if we haven't met, and it's awesome to be here together this morning to share, uh, kicking off a new series, but also just diving into God's Word. Uh, If you're new or visiting and just checking out Southside, if this is a place for you, can I encourage you again, like what the other guys have said about the newcomers' morning tea, it's just to help people work out, hey, is this a church home for me? Uh, It's uh, 10.30 upstairs, so if the service finishes about quarter past 10, it's enough time to grab a cuppa, come upstairs, and we'll certainly be done before midday. Uh, So if you want to go out for lunch or anything like that, uh, please join us. Let me pray, and then we'll dive in uh, to this new passage. Dear Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to draw near to you. We thank you that we can uh, not only dive into your word through scripture, but we can draw near to you, and you say when we... uh, come near to you and we come together your spirit be with us that we can um, know you truly exist and that we can truly have that relationship with you and call you father so lord we pray that as we spend this time together this morning you will uh, show us your vision for this church for us and for your people all around the world we pray it in jesus name amen As Dave mentioned before uh, it is 50 years 50 years since man walked on the moon and in that time Uh, something very significant happened, you know, the world sort of changed, how humanity sort of expanded, they can go beyond our earthly borders and go uh, to to actually walk on another, it's not another planet, I know, but whatever, another place uh, like that is incredible that they could do that. It was a big vision at the time, but also they had a bigger vision after that because it's 50 years ago now, but they said, you know, we can see within one generation of that happening, that was uh, 1969, I believe. Of course, I wasn't born then. But um, 1969, uh, within one generation, we could envisage people living on the moon. You could go and live there. And, you know, we're 50 years down the track, and one generation's like 30 years. Uh, it hasn't happened yet. In fact, what they're saying now is for us to do what we did before, to put man on the moon like that again, it would cost something like $500 billion for, for one venture like that. That's not going to happen again. So when we look at their vision, their long-term goals, you know, sometimes they're, they're good, they're aspirational, they're exciting, but whether they come through is just a whole other question. Now, I'm not just having a go at NASA because I've... Um, I've stood before this congregation before and saying, I've got goals too. My uh, New Year's resolution, well, this six months ago, I think it was a year before, that I said, uh, if you were here, that I was going to lose a stack of weight and look at me, I'm going to change. And uh, no matter how much I tried, um, it hasn't happened yet. 
uh, even, I tried hard, right? I even got some trainers to say, oh, we'll give you a six-pack in no time. I think I've got a photo of the trainers uh, that I took up. A couple of these guys. Even then, I still haven't got the six-pack they're offering. But, um, you know, you can have these aspirations, these New Year's resolutions, and even when they're uh, New Year's resolutions, I've come across this other way of putting it. If you can't do it in 12 months, they're not New Year's resolutions, they're goals. They're, you know, they're my two-year goals, my five-year goals, my 10-year goals. We can have these long-term goals, and that's okay, that's acceptable. So the body is a long-term goal now. Um, but we can ask the question, what are our long-term goals? You know, what are you going to be doing maybe at the end of this year, you're hoping to be finishing some studies, new job, uh, new babies even, uh, things happening. What about in two years' time, five years' time, ten years' time? Have you ever thought about where you want to be? What's your vision and where you want to be in that time and how's that going to happen? Because as we think about uh, the future, it's kind of exciting. What holidays are you looking forward to? Where do you want your family at or your, what job you want to be at? There's a whole lot of things there that actually is exciting when we think about the future and what our goals are. But there's also another question going on here that uh, often we don't think about or realise, and that is, what is God's vision for us? What is His goals for us? Where does He want us to be in two years, five years, ten years, a lifetime? Where does He want us to be in that time? Now, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, still the same question. If there is a God, what does He want of my life? And where does He want to take it? What is it all about? Now, We've been uh, working on this series for a while in the office here and we've been talking about what this, this God's vision for our life looks like and we've come up, the best way to describe it is actually it's a dangerous vision that God's got for each of us. And we need to recognise that, to actually talk it through. Where's God leading us, not only as a church, but as individuals? How does that, what does that look like and where is he taking us? So for the next six weeks, we're going to be digging a bit deeper into that. This week's just a bit of a, a flyover, uh, just getting our head around what God's vision for us is. And over the next six weeks, we'll be digging a little bit deeper into what that looks like. But there's lots of visions around for us, uh, whether we set our own vision or other people project it onto us. But this is God's vision uh, and we've got to work out, are we going to align ourselves with his vision or not? So we need to understand what God's vision is. Uh, and we see that in um, part of the passage we saw earlier is from Acts chapter 2. This is the first church. But we get into the start of the book of Acts and this is a real transition point from when Jesus walked this earth to then what happens after that because a whole lot of things change. And we see, uh, so this is right from verse 1 in Acts chapter 1. Uh, this is uh, a guy called Luke is writing this, and this is most of the New Testament, are letters writing to people. This is, this is what I know, or this is what I'm teaching. Uh, this is Luke writing to a guy th called Theophilus. Luke's the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke that you have in your New Testament. This is a story about Jesus. It's almost like uh, 50 years ago, we heard the story about man walking on the moon, and then we see what happens after that. The gospel, in Luke's gospel about Jesus, I'm writing about this is when God walked on earth. This is when God entered man's world in a real way. When God, through his son Jesus, came and walked this earth. That's the gospel. Now when we get into Acts, it goes, okay, now what happens after God entered the world and, and then ascended back? A whole lot of things happened. 
Uh, so that's sort of setting up the anticipation and excitement. What is God's vision for, for his people after Jesus leaves? It gets fleshed out a little bit from verse 4 onwards. Uh, first of all, um, oh, sorry. Let me go back to verse 3, sorry. Um, when Luke says, after his suffering, talking about Jesus, he presented himself to them, that's his apostles and other people around, and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Luke wants to be sure at the start of this book that we know Jesus was alive. We just finished the Gospel of Luke. He was killed. He was buried. But there's no doubt he was dead. The Roman executioners made sure he was dead. He was buried. But in three days later... He was alive, come out of the tomb. He appeared to them. It looks like this is evidence. There's something going on here. This is not just a good teacher, another man. This truly is the Son of God that has defeated death. And because Jesus is alive, because he's defeated death, that's going to trigger a whole lot of things in human history. Nobody's ever defeated death before. But because Jesus has done it, there's a whole lot of things that are now going to happen. And we get a hint of that because we're told that Jesus then hangs out with his disciples 40 days, talking to them about, among other things, the kingdom of God. Now, we know all through the, the Gospels, Jesus keeps bringing up this idea, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is coming, he's saying. And he talks about how the kingdom of God is not like this world of what you see around us, but the kingdom of God is what's unseen. It's my kingdom. And Jesus says, I'm going to come uh, and people can enter the kingdom of God through me, he says. So there's this, this other world, the unseen, this other kingdom that is a part of God's vision. And we can see right from Genesis 12 and God's promises to Abraham, this vision of this God gathering his people around him into his kingdom. Now this kingdom of God is kind of this now, not yet thing of uh, Jesus saying you can enter the kingdom, you can be a part of the kingdom now through Jesus Christ, but it'll come to full fulfillment in heaven, in the next life. So it's almost like if you believe in Jesus now, you get your citizenship, but you don't actually enter the country properly until you uh, get into the next life. But he's saying you can enter this kingdom of God now. Okay, what does that look like? He goes on to explain, so Jesus is risen, He's laying it all out there. The kingdom of God is coming. What else changes coming? He starts talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. This again is God entering the world. We've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus is about to ascend back into heaven, but the Holy Spirit is going to come, and he's going to come in a way that he's never come before in human history. So you can pick it up in verse 5 there. Uh, Jesus saying, For John baptized with water... But in a few days, you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. He's going to come. In the past, in the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit at work and he comes and goes off people, God at work in people's lives. But this time, if you're a, part, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're a part of the kingdom, God is going to dwell in you. In you. Not just come and go. He's going to be in your life. You're at one with God. <clears throat> and then he says in verse 8, he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. If you have God living in you, this is something never seen before. 
This kingdom of God is so different to this world if you've got God living in you and the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. But what's that Holy Spirit going to do in you? It's not just transform you, not to give you the, just to give you the kingdom of God experience, but he goes on in verse 8, say, when he comes on you, um, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's like no longer is this message about Jesus or message about the kingdom of God just for God's own people in Jerusalem, you know, around the temple, you know, if you're a Jew, you're, you're in the family. No, no. This is a message for everybody. The outsiders can become insiders. Anybody can come to Jesus. It's a message of grace. This is a powerful message. This kingdom of God is unlike any other kingdom the world had seen. But it all triggers because Jesus is risen. He's alive. He's truly God. And that's triggered off a whole series of events. The kingdom of God is now coming and you can enter it. The Holy Spirit's going to come and be a part of it. The Holy Spirit, God, is going to come into your life. You're no longer outsiders, but you're united with God. And, and then the, the mission of the kingdom of God is to invite others in too, so others can enjoy, enjoy this, this unity with God that's been unseen. See, what, what is drawing up here, this vision of God, it's not south side vision that we've made up this is actually jesus words that luke wants us to see this is god's vision for his people there's no church existing at this time the church is going to happen later but this is a picture of the kingdom of god and what god's got planned and it's an exciting picture but the rest of the book of acts shows how it plays out and what it looks like so we want to see what does this look like because it's all a bit abstract at this point in time See, we get chapter 1 shows us this is God's vision for his people. Chapter 2, we start to see what it looks like. And chapter 2, we see <coughs> uh, there's a big thing going on in Jerusalem. It's Passover. Lots of people have come from all different areas. So they've come together and they're speaking all different language. The Holy Spirit comes on to, to the disciples and they start proclaiming the message of Jesus in different tongues, being different languages, so other people can understand them talking about Jesus. And then uh, the Apostle Peter gets up and does the first sermon ever about Jesus and starts telling them uh, about the truth, about you need to follow Jesus to enter the kingdom of God. I'll just show you a few verses at the end of his sermon here. So chapter 2 from verse 38. Peter says, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. What he's saying is you need to repent. Repent's just a word that says you need to turn. You need to turn around. Because if we're living in this world, in this kingdom, we're travelled in this direction, you know, with the, what the world's gender is, the world's vision is, you know, it's about you and your advancement of you and my better life, my comfort's all about me. He says, no, you actually got to repent, you got to turn. To pursue the kingdom of God is actually to pursue the king. You've actually got to come to Jesus and start living for his kingdom, living with his priorities. It's very different. And in that process, uh, forgiveness of sins from living our own way in rebellion and now living God's way. So it's, living the, it's a whole change of life to live for the kingdom of God. But then you'll get the Holy Spirit. Everything that Jesus said is, is, will happen. 
Uh, and then we see um, he puts out the, the call, save yourself from this corrupt generation, like they're all headed towards their own kingdom. No, no, go to the kingdom of God, save yourself uh, for him. And then he put out the, the, the call of who wants to believe. Many people were baptised and about 3,000 people believed. I want to be a part of God's kingdom. I want to repent. I want to turn and start living for Jesus. So this is the start of the new church. So this is the first ever sermon preached. This is the start of the first ever church. Boom, you've got 3,000 people. And what does that look like? Because we're talking up the kingdom of God, but how does it work out in practice? And we go on the very next verse, and this is what we had read for us. And we get this great picture of people meeting together. They're getting, uh, gathering around the teaching, God's word, and just hearing God speak to them through that, through the apostles' teaching. They're meeting together for meals and that whole idea of fellowship around the table and around Jesus. Uh, they're meeting together to pray together. They're uh, seeing the apostles do amazing miracles. Uh, they've got everything in common. There's this unity that they're sharing uh, they're meeting together in the temple, but that's not enough. They're meeting in homes as well. Uh, but they're not doing it because they're going through the religious motions. They're doing it because they've got glad and sincere hearts. Being a Christian is not just about study, study, study. It's what you know. No, no, they're saying it's a heart thing. With glad and sincere hearts, they're getting together. Nobody's telling them to do it. They're doing it. Even the outsiders are noticing, hey, these guys are different. And they respect that. This is a glimpse of this other kingdom. And some of them are being attracted to it. The Lord added to their number and they're growing. Outsiders are now becoming insiders. It's a great picture. It's a glimpse into the kingdom of God, the, what Jesus had been talking about. When you enter that unity with God with, through the Holy Spirit, when everybody's coming together and, and with the Holy Spirit in them, they're, they're just drawn together, everything in common. Coming near to God. If chapter 1's the vision, chapter 2 is where we see it starting, this is what it's looking like. It's a little glimpse of like heaven on earth, so the reality is going to be in heaven. But this is just a little window and going, hey, this is something to anticipate. This is good. But when we look at that, that's an exciting vision. I mean, that's the sort of church I want to be a part of. But I think we can pass over it very quickly and realise this is actually a very dangerous vision. It's dangerous at a number of levels for us when we read that and say, hey, we want to be a part of a church like that. For starters, it's set up in a dangerous world. That's where um, this is all taking place. The message of the gospel calls us to repent, to turn. Stop living your own life in your own kingdom. Turn and trust in Jesus and live for his kingdom. It's a very different place, it's a very different attitude. And when you call for people to turn from um, the world we live, <coughs> the culture we're in, it's a big call to then turn to God. In chapter 3, so chapter 1's, you might say, the vision. Chapter 2, we start seeing it work out. Chapter 3, if you're flicking through your Bible, we see Peter and John, two of the main uh, apostles, they get thrown in jail because people are offended by their vision, or by what they're preaching about Jesus. They don't like it, so they get thrown in jail. Chapter 5, a couple of chapters later, uh, all the apostles get thrown into jail. Chapter 6, another guy called Stephen gets up and preaches, and by the end there's such anger against what he's preaching, that Jesus is the only way into the kingdom of God, to this new life, that in chapter 7 there's a public stoning of him. 
not just a few people, the public have stoned and killed the guy Stephen uh, at the end of his sermon. Why is there so much hate? Why is there so much pushback against this message, even though it sounds so appealing? It's because it's actually pushing against everything the world values. You can't just go down that path anymore. You've actually got to turn around, say you're sorry to God, and start following Jesus. And that's a dangerous message. And it's when people understand it, they realise you're actually asking me to give up my life and my desires and follow what God wants. And it's threatening. Threatening to our idols. Threatening to the stuff that we value. Most people like the picture of chapter 2. They like the idea of the kingdom of God, this place of unity and harmony and peace. They like that picture. They don't necessarily like the king. The king is something, I don't want to follow the king. I want all the good things, but I want to do it my way. So I'll head down my path. And if you tell me I've got to follow that king, I'm going to push up against it. And that's what we see in the start of Acts. It's the religious leaders. It's the Jewish leaders that are pushing against. And then as we go on, the Romans get involved and it's the rest of culture that's going to push against us, against the message. But we see it too. In a world that pushes against the message of Jesus as the king, and the only way to the kingdom is to trust in him, the world's tried a whole bunch of different ways to have the kingdom without the king. Uh, We can see across the world the history of communism captures the same idea. We want this picture of paradise we want this picture of unity and harmony and not where people are all unequal so everybody works together they pool their money and they help each other out it's a great picture uh, in an ideal world but in communism if you know the history of china russia they don't want the king they don't want religion at all so they think they can achieve the kingdom by banning christianity and all religions so they bulldozed all the churches and, and got rid of them They try and get the kingdom without the king. But because of the sinful nature, they're going to struggle through that. But it's not just communism. Uh, Other countries with cultures of capitalism, like us. We go, you can have your kingdom. Get a job, work hard. You can be who you want to be. You can get what you want to get. You can work towards your kingdom and you can have it all. It's the dream. And we see it playing out we can have it and in fact even though they're not banning churches or banning talking about jesus it raises the question you know why would you need jesus you can have the kingdom just by working hard by getting all this stuff you can have paradise you don't need god in fact god will slow you down capitalism in a sense same sends the same message we want the kingdom but without the king but we all do it here even in Australia and in our own cultures, you know, my kingdom is happiness. I'm going to do whatever I want just as long as I'm happy. So I'll do my own path. I want happiness in the kingdom, but I don't want to be told by somebody else like Jesus what to do or how to get it. So we actually push Jesus out as well. You know, in the last 10 years in Australian history, we've had a massive shift in Australians' short history compared to other nations. The whole same-sex marriage debate now the Israel Folau thing has raised a whole stack of questions. Actually, what does it mean to find happiness? What does it mean to have this kingdom-type uh, image and to live that out? Can I do it my own way or do I need to follow the king? Is the current climate, the current debate, do I need God? Society wants to push God out of this world 
but God just doesn't go away. You know, Christianity spread through communism. Christianity is growing around the world. God is not going away. This world has never been a comfortable place for Christians. It's been a dangerous place for Christians to really capture God's vision and to push up against everything the world is offering. So his vision is dangerous because we live in a dangerous world. But it's also not just a dangerous world. What he's talking about is actually a very dangerous church to be a part of. For a couple of reasons. First, the church that's described here, this new church, is not a comfortable church to be a part of. You know, when I first read uh, chapter 2, it's very appealing. You know, this church, you know, all of a sudden there's 3,000 people, there's all this unity and harmony and hanging out together. And I go, that's, that looks so good because it doesn't talk about meetings, it doesn't talk about meeting budgets or mortgages, uh, it doesn't talk about any of those duties that you've got to do, uh, rosters, doesn't mention any, it's so organic. It sounds so good. But then you look a bit deeper and you realise it's not like that. It's kind of because of their success, because the gospel is alive and it's working in people, is so attractive that the church is growing, that it's almost their success in the gospel that forces them to change, that it's not an organic place. Like we see... uh, in chapter 2, the church is growing. Uh, other chapters, people are ad- being added to the church. We get to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, we get some complaints, some grumblings happening. Because as they're distributing food, because people were making budget by selling their land and chipping in their money so they could buy all this food, not just to feed everybody in their church events, but to, to help the poorer people and the widows. And the people in charge of the food, so there must have been some organisation going on, were being a little bit biased on what widows are, are getting the food first and sorry to the other widows, we're, we've run out of food, you're missing out. So some grumbling come back to the apostles. Not everybody's being looked after here. There's a problem here. So what do the apostles do? They appoint uh, five people to head up organising the distribution of food. Now, I don't know, we talk a lot about ministry teams here and serving in ministry teams. This is the first ever ministry team that I can see in a church. And guess what team it is? The hospitality team. Every good church needs a good hospitality team, right? So they've set up these guys. They've got leadership. Now, there's structure. We've got to get money in to buy food, to distribute this food around. It's growing pains. It can't be organic like it was before, which means it's not the actual comfortable place where we can sit back and just be served and just let it all happen naturally. They've had to put structures in place. It's interesting that the apostles said, didn't say with this problem, let's go back to chapter 2. We're getting too big, it's getting too cluttery and too clunky. Let's go back to chapter 2 and make it organic. We're going to have to lose some people or church split or whatever. But they've actually said, no, we've actually got to accommodate for more growth because we're expecting God to reach more people. And we need to do this better. So they've worked through that to make it uh, be done better. This church was never a comfortable place to be in, like we might think. But they've actually had to work hard to be loving to each other, be common, uh, to be, uh, yeah, looking after each other. There's a guy called uh, William Booth. You might have heard of him, if you've heard of the Salvation Army. He kicked, kicked off the Salvation Army. And he came up with this uh, very helpful image of uh, 
what he could see going on in life. He says, I sit down, I look outside, and I see people going about their busy lives. They're just too busy for God, and they're, they're just hustle and bustle. And he says, what I see is, as I look out my window, he says, it's like an ocean, and the sea is rough, and people are going about, and they're drowning in this rough ocean. And we're looking out. He says, William Booth was a Christian. He says, I know Jesus. I know life. I know I'm part of the kingdom of God. But when I see all these people lost and drowning, he says, what we need is to see the church, to see us as a lifeboat that's going to go out. So he says, uh, we've got the message of the gospel. We've got the message that's going to give life. We, we need to be going out and rescuing people by sharing the gospel, pulling them into the lifeboat so they can have life as well. But as he sees what's going on, all these people lost, all these people drowning, uh, he says, what's the church doing? Are we pulling out our lifeboats? Are we on these lifeboats going out to rescue? But he was super frustrated at his own church because he's, what he's seeing in his own church, he says people are treating the church like a cruise ship. They come on board, they feel comfortable, and you know it's all about me, it's all about me and my good times and my needs met, and it's all about... Uh, yeah, me getting what I want out of life from church rather than seeing all the people drowning in the ocean. And it frustrated him when he heard people in his own church uh, complaining. He says, you should be in your lifeboat. You should be in your lifeboat, but instead you're complaining about your comfort. You know, as their church is growing, they're going, hey, this is getting a bit squashy in here. I don't know everybody anymore i don't want strangers in my lifeboat sitting beside me it's not the old church i used to be you know i can't get a car park at the front door anymore it's getting too hard for me the coffee queue is getting longer there's too many at church you know relationally it's too hard all this change is too hard and his attitude to them was you know if we're running out of rooms in the life raft you know who should get out to make room you know go on the cruise ship somewhere else because we're about saving souls. Now, you might have heard that story before, but I think it's particularly relevant for us as a church in this time in the life of Southside, because we've been on this bit of a journey. A journey uh, kicked off, um, well, from what I know, when I started uh, coming around here about 15 years ago, we are meeting in this little old house, and we're struggling to be a church. So we're part of a bigger church, uh, but we wanted a, a good, healthy church here in this area. So there was always the agenda of we need to be reaching out with the love of Jesus, the message of Jesus, and see people grow. And it was a great day of rejoicing, particularly for me, when we got to the point where uh, we're about 60 people meeting in the old house up the road, and uh, we made budget. Because when you make budget and you can pay your own way, all of a sudden, at least in our denomination, you can be a church as far as uh, you can manage yourself with your own leadership, you can make your own decisions. We've kind of made it. And I remember thinking at that time, this is such a relief because I never knew. We started off with about 10 people. To get to 60 people was significant in itself. But then to, to make budget, it's like such a relief. I never knew if we could actually make it. But trusting God, we finally got there. And it was almost like, wow, it's almost like I can take the foot off the pedal now a bit because uh, we're comfortable. 60 people's a great-sized church. Uh, if anybody remembers those days, if they were around, you know, relationally, you've got happy family, things that still got that organic feel. It was awesome. But then 
you know, to think through, are we just going to be another church in this area? Because there's plenty of other churches in this area. Or what has God got us here for? And it was at that time I met together with the elders and going, what, what, why has God got us here? And that's where we come up with this 1% vision of just saying, hey, we live in an area, within 10 minutes of this church, there's over 100,000 people. And if we could just have an impact on that with the gospel, that would be awesome. So we're going to uh, work and pray to God that he would use us to reach 1%. 1% is such a small percentage for God. But, but for a church of 60 people to say, we're going to pray and work towards being a church of 1,000 people. Not because we want to be a big church, but because we want 1,000 people in the lifeboat. We want 1,000 people coming into the kingdom. So that was our prayer, and that's what we were working towards. That set the agenda then of... Uh, how are we going to reach more people? Our house has been full, we're running two services. Uh, we moved into a, another building, the Seventh-day Adventist building, which allowed us to, to serve more people uh, and to grow. Because of the 1%, we can reach more people. Uh, staffing decisions, why would we put on more staff? Is it going to help us reach the lost, reach the 1%? Yes, so let's stick our neck out and uh, put on extra staff to do that. And things, things we, you know, are growing well, we're seeing God at work, and then it come time to go, well, actually, we're actually growing out of the Seventh-day Adventist building. We need our own space, we need our own building, and then this option come up to move to this building here. Um, that process was going on about four years ago, and it was crunch time. Not only was the question, how are we going to reach the 1%, we need a bigger building, here's a bigger building, let's make it happen. That's kind of the easy one. But it's how serious, I think the bigger question was how serious were we about reaching the 1%? How serious were we that God had taken us this far and that we were going to stick our neck even further to see the thousand people come into the lifeboat? Would we be, as a church, prepared to go into debt for that? How much debt would we be prepared to go into to see this lifeboat being a bit bigger so we can fill it up a bit more? A million dollars debt? How about four million dollars debt? Are we as a church prepared to go into $4 million debt to be in a better position for God to use us to reach our community? And we approved it almost unanimously. We have confidence in God that he's using us. He's taken us from 10 people to however many people we have now. We have confidence that God's using it. We've seen him in action. We can trust that he'll continue to build it. And we're so confident we're even going to put our money on the line to do that. That was about four years ago. Now... I don't think it matters whether you've been on that journey for the last 10 years or you're new to church now. But as you walk into church now, it feels very like a cruise ship. You come in here and go, actually, for church standards, this is pretty comfortable, this is pretty nice. And you know, the, um, the crew on the ship, they serve us well. Yeah, how many people serve on a Sunday morning to make church work? There's 46 people uh, assigned different tasks every Sunday for us to sit in church, looking after our kids, uh, morning tea, making us coffee, uh, bringing music to us. 46 people is a pretty good crew to make it a nice, comfy place. And we want it comfy for the, for the outsider to come in, for, for those to see, actually, we want you to be uh, well-loved, well-looked after, to hear the message of Jesus. But once you start becoming a regular and start becoming comfortable, it starts to be pretty cruisy. William Booth would say, if you're getting comfortable, 
you're not in a life raft anymore. You're starting to sit on a cruise ship. And we need to remember that we are, we're only here because of the 1%. We're only here because of the outsider. We're here because of the Holy Spirit is, is at work in us, bringing us unity, bringing us together with God. And we need to be using that and to show our outsider there's something else going on that's very different to the world that's happening in here. We need to not forget we are the lifeboat that's going out to save our community around us. That's God's vision. That's a dangerous vision. Because all of a sudden, now we're a part of a church that's going, we're actually serious about this message? We're actually serious about praying and working to what, for God to use us? And when you ask those things, dangerous things happen when God gets involved. One, we're not comfortable anymore because we're actually going to be used by God if we're going to pray it. The other thing is when you pray to God that prayer, you're actually being prepared for God to use you in that journey. And when God works, he really works. Let me just show you a little picture in Acts. Um, when, uh, in chapter, five, uh, chapter 4, there's a story about the, the apostles getting thrown into jail and all the believers uh, got together and are going to pray for the apostles uh, in this time of persecution. So end of chapter 4, verse 29, this is just the end of their prayer. This is what they're asking for. Now, Lord, consider the threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So it's like, even though the world's pushing against the message, use us, give us boldness. But then they go on, stretch out your hand and heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So, you know, we want you a part of this journey, God. We want to see you at work. We want to be used by you and want to see you uh, working through us. We want God to be a part of it. That's a dangerous prayer. Uh, right after the ground shook and you know, people you know, received the Holy Spirit through that prayer. Soon after that, though, we get back to the daily grind of what this church was doing and people were selling their properties and um, contributing to the life of the church. And they're, they're pointed out, these guys are giving generously. They've really bought into this. But then uh, we hear this about this couple in the very next chapter, Ananias and Sapphira, this couple who said, hey, we're going to sell our property and give all the money to this good work this church is doing. They didn't have to give it all, but they said, we're going to give it all. Ananias comes in with some of the money and the apostles call him out on it it's like you're saying you're giving it all you're saying you're being very generous but aren't you going you're only giving this much and they called him out and they said you're actually lying to god by doing that and god strikes him down and he dies then his wife's fire comes in they said look are you, you're telling everybody you're given all your money but you're only given part is that what you're doing uh and they call her out on as testing the spirit and then she dies in front of them. And she gets buried as well. And you know what? It's sort of shocking in that story about, man, God's striking these down. They're giving something to the church, but they, they're talking themselves up much more than what they're actually giving. What is going on there? This couple were probably sitting in the same room praying this prayer that we got up on the screen about God, show us your presence through uh, performing signs and wonders. God, be a part of this journey. Be a part of this so we can know you're real and know you're active in us. And guess what? They're playing the game of religion or self-promotion and God's going, you want to see signs and wonders? You want to see me a part of this church? 
and they're struck down. Be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you pray for. This is not the comfy church that we saw, we might have thought in chapter 2. But God is a part of it. God is living and active and he is a part of it. And it's just amazing when we, we started praying that God would use us to reach the 1%. And we can see it in action. We see lives change. We see people... Uh, our vision here is to um, make and grow disciples. So we want to see people come onto the lifeboat for the first time. We want to see people who are already on the lifeboat to grow in their maturity, to pick up the oar and start rowing and to start dragging other people in. We want to help people across the whole journey. And we're seeing that in action, that God is really a part of it. So it's a dangerous church that he's talking about. But finally, it's a dangerous life that he's calling us to as well. See, when the apostles uh, were in jail, an angel came and the angel uh, gave them these instructions. Uh, during the night, uh, so this is 519, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. And then the angel said, Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people about this new life. So you've been called into this new life, this new kingdom. It's different to the world. Tell people about it. Now, we've already shared a lot about um, the idea of uh, getting the word out so other people can come into the kingdom. But this whole idea, what we've got in Jesus is a radically new life. It's very different. And that's dangerous for us because that's going to push up against our values from our old selves. You know, when it's all about me and my wants and my needs and my vision for my life and I want to be here in five years or ten years and God's saying, no, you actually need to repent and align our values with his values. And that's radically different. We actually have to give up a lot of our old idols and a lot of our old stuff to now follow God. The... Um, I was reading a book this week which uh, picked up... That could be my phone, by the way, sorry. I should have turned it down. And it's probably Kim going, how'd you go this morning? It's just... <laughs> it just <laughs> you, you could have put it on, she could hear the end of the sermon. I was just... Um, sorry, <laughs> keep your phones on silent. My wife's been away for three weeks, by the way, if you didn't hear. She's back on Wednesday, it's a pretty exciting time. Um, I was reading this book during the week and uh, it confronted me with something very real. Uh, and he, he said, you know, this guy writing, he says, I've been a Christian for 30 years. He says, I finally realise I'm actually a two-year-old Christian. I, s I should be a 30-year-old Christian, maturity and growing. But he says, I look at my life and I realise I'm actually a two-year-old Christian, but I've been a two-year-old Christian for 30 years. Because I'm acting like a two-year-old. Because, if you've ever been around a two-year-old, uh, they're very dependent. You need to feed them, you need to dress them, you need to wipe their backside, you need to do everything for them. But yet they're still very independent in that it's all about me and what makes me happy and my want. They're my toys, don't touch and don't tell me what to do. They're very strong-willed that way. And he said, I realise that that's where my spiritual maturity's at. I'm actually still an infant. I haven't let go of all the old values that I had before. I haven't repented properly to turn to Jesus and his kingdom for us. And in another way of saying, I still want the kingdom, but I actually haven't started following the king seriously yet. 
And that's dangerous because we have to start reevaluating what do we hold near and dear? Is it right? And that applies to us, doesn't matter what stage of life we're at, what does it look like to somebody to live in the kingdom of God as Jesus as their king, whether you're at high school, at uni, what does that look like? Whether, uh, what does that look like in singleness, in marriage or parenting? What does that look like to have Jesus as your king looking, living for his kingdom? It's radically different to the world. Don't look to the world for answers. Look into his word. Let the spirit talk to you in that space. It's very exciting uh, to be a part of this church because we are seeing people really switching on to that and seeing their lives change. People coming up and saying, hey, look, I'm just reading a lot more and I'm praying a lot more and I'm engaging with God a lot more and I just want to share this good news with other people that, hey, this is real and I'm seeing God do real work in my life. Other people going, hey, I get what we're doing here at church and I get the importance of the mission. I'm thinking about giving up uh, some time next year, a day of, the, day of a week to, to commit to church, to see, um, to help things run better, do better and hopefully reach more people better. It's significant change. The world will go, why are you volunteering your time like that? Why are you reading so much of that stuff? But the kingdom of God is changing hearts and it's seeing uh, in people's hands and their actions. See, where is your life headed? Your two-year goals, five-year goals, ten-year goals? What are you looking at for a lifetime? If it's aiming for comfort, you've got to reevaluate that. That this, is, uh, this vision of God's is not a place just for comfort. It's an exciting journey, and it gives us real purpose in life. It gives us a real direction in life that there's something bigger than the world is offering, but it's an invitation to be a part of it. And I invite you, I don't, doesn't matter if this is your first time here, doesn't even matter if you're not a Christian, or even if you've been a Christian and been a part of this congregation for a long time. We're on this journey to make and grow disciples. We want to help you investigate Jesus. Is he going to be the Lord of your life? We want to help you in that journey. Or if you are a Christian, how can you be a part of growing in maturity? Don't stay a two-year-old. But how do we keep growing in that we want to be a part of that journey with you we're going to dig a bit deeper over the next uh five sundays after this one but i want to encourage you do something about it either come to the morning tea this morning and hear a bit more about our, our journey come to a growth group and get fired up in relationships do the community uh like we've been talking about but it is a journey we haven't not pretending we've got it together but we certainly want to take god's vision for us seriously I want to invite you to be a part of it. Let me pray that God might help us in that journey. Dear Father God, we thank you for your clear outline of the expectations for your church. And what a wonderful vision it is for us to know there's more than this world offers and it's a much bigger and better vision for us than this world offers. To be a part of the kingdom of God, to be yet one with you through your Holy Spirit, to be brought into you because of Jesus and through his actions on the cross. But Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage to repent, to turn from what we're clinging on to, to turn from our expectations if they're wrong, to turn from our, our desire to just, just be hanging out comfortable, but to have that burning fire for the lost, that burning fire under us that wants us to grow into maturity and that burning fire to bring as many people into the lifeboat and into the kingdom as possible. Lord, use us as a church, we pray. 
And we're not blind, we're not naive to what that might mean for us, the discomforts that might mean, the commitments that that might mean. But Lord, we genuinely pray that you would use us in mighty ways. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.